If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're new with us, we've been making our way through a study on the book of 1 Peter as we've just been matriculating our way verse by verse, uh, trying to hear God speak to us. We've learned since day one that if there's one word that sums up the book of 1 Peter, it is the word exiles. We are exiles, that when you got saved, you became citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And our loyalty to that kingdom is to trump, no pun intended, any loyalty we may have to any kingdoms of this earth. All right? So we are exiles. We are the close strangers. We are just passing through. That, yes, we are to enjoy things in this life. Uh, We can love things in this life. But at the end of the day, we do not get enamored with this life. We are just passing through. This is a needed word for us here in the Bay. Pick me up in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I had uh, so many people just give me so much positive feedback uh, about last week and so many husbands love that video of the wife with the nail in her head. I think it went viral again last week. But pick me up in verse 8. Peter writes these words. Finally, all of you Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay, verse 9, evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, underline this phrase, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Four, verse 10, he's now quoting from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. Make note of this phrase. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want to preach this morning from the subject, the high road of blessing. The high, high road of blessing. Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for all that you've said and done in this place. Now, Lord God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, hearts to receive your word. Pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would produce a harvest, Lord God. Encourage our lives where appropriate. Challenge us. Uh, Spirit of the living God, convict us where appropriate. But I pray, Lord God, that we would leave here changed and more conformed into your image because of our time spent in your presence. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. One of my favorite uh, authors is a guy by the name of Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose is a World War II historian, and one of the books that he wrote uh, about uh, that great war, the war, uh, World War II, is a book that he wrote called The Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. In fact, it was seen as being so prolific that HBO actually did a TV series based on Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, entitled the same thing, Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is the true story of World War II's most decorated company, E Company. 
If you know anything about E Company, they, they fought in some of the most uh, prolific and decorated and well-known battles in theaters. They fought, um, they stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. They fought at the Battle of the Bulge. They fought in all of these great battles. And they had all of this success. And if you were to ask, what was the secret sauce to their success, Ambrose points out, it was the incredible love that the men of E Company had for one another. They were, as the title suggested, a band of brothers. In fact, Ambrose uh, in his book points out that these men loved each other so much that when they were wounded and were sent to hospitals, oftentimes they would leave hospitals early for fear of being transferred to another company. They would rather die on the battlefield with men that they loved than to be transferred to a different company. That what made them so powerful, what made them so effective was their fierce love for one another. They were again a band of brothers. As Peter opens up our passage, he's dealing with what the church should be about. He says the church should be a place where there's unity of mind, where there's sympathy, where there's brotherly love, where we have tender hearts towards one another, and where we're marked by humility. In other words, Peter wants us to understand that that church is to be a place of deep abiding community. That if all for you church is, is a place for you to walk in, nobody really knows you, where you hear a word, where you sing some songs, and then you leave, you have missed out on the purpose of church. Church was designed to be a place of deep-seated, abiding community. You cannot hear this. You cannot get to all that what, all that what God wants you to get to on your own. This is the un-American part of the sermon. You are woefully inadequate to experience life to the fullest on your own. You can't get there on your own. You need people. Say that with me. I need people. Say it one more time. I need people. You got to get that word in your spirit. God has designed life in such a way that you and I have to have community. This is not just something God says. It's how God actually lives. This whole idea of the Trinity, what theologians call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is nothing but community. Before God created the earth, he lived in community with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And long after we're gone, he will continue to live in eternal abiding relationships with others. Hear me. If God says, I'm going to live in community, it is the epitome of arrogance for me to say, I don't need something that God uses himself. We need each other. We need community. Not only that, when God creates Adam and Eve, 
When God creates Adam, he, he calls him into this thing of the family. In fact, if I can just read the white spaces of the text, I imagine God peering over the balcony of heaven one day and looking at the, uh, at the end of another work day, and there's mama giraffe going home with daddy giraffe, and there's husband elephant going home with wife elephant, and yet Adam has no one at this point in time to go home with, and God literally says these words, it is not good for man to be alone. I want you to say that with me. It is not good for me to be alone. Say it with me. It is not good for me to be alone. If you've ever watched the Discovery Channel and you look at some wildebeest out on the dusty plains of Africa by himself, you know what we call that? Lunch. Hear me, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Your adversary goes about as a roaring lion, seeking in whom he, he may devour. And if you are out doing life by yourself, you are what we call lunch for the enemy. You can't get there by yourself. You need community. And so now, all throughout what we see God doing, he lives in community. He now creates the family, which is domestic community. He, he now creates the nation of Israel, and it's organized with its tribes and clans and family, most conducive to community. At Jesus Christ, what is the first thing he does in his public ministry? He begins selecting people. Alyssa Pickard, so good to see you. Been praying for you. He begins selecting people and placing them in community, and then and when God boards a cloud to go back to heaven, what does he do? He now calls these disciples in whom he spent three years of community with. He says, I am now calling you to do very supplant little outposts of community called the church. And the church is to be a place of deep abiding community. Again, I said it earlier, over 120 times in the New Testament, you see this phrase pop up as it relates to the church. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. This is the church. Now, here's our problem. Our problem is our deepest longing is also our deepest frustration, people. Sometimes I think life would be so much easier if it wasn't for folk. If it wasn't for people, I, I just got to tell you that it's our deepest longing and our deepest frustration. Now, I've talked to many women over the years and most of the women um, at, at some point that, that I've talked to, uh, most women say things like, oh, I, I just well, girls are too messy. Now, y'all said it. I didn't say it. In fact, my wife and I, we were just having this conversation last night. You know, I was just kind of asking her, and I said, did, did you ever imagine having three boys? She goes, actually, I got four boys. But she says, well, did you ever imagine having three boys? She says, actually, yeah, I went to all-girl private Catholic school in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I just remember one day in high school getting frustrated with girls and saying, God, I, I need to have all boys. I want to have all boys. And he goes, I didn't know what I was praying for at the time, but God heard my prayers. But it, listen to me. If, if, <laughs> here's the irony. If most women say that how women, other women are messy, you're really talking about yourself as well. All of us, women and men included, we bring dysfunction and therefore the very thing that we long for is the very thing that, we, that frustrates us. And so now what, we, what we're stuck with is I long for community, but I'm living in isolation. I'm not talking about how many friends you have on Facebook followers you have on Instagram. I'm talking about who are your pallbearers? 
One of the saddest things I ever saw was at my grandmama's funeral. I just remember being at her funeral. Hardly anybody shows up for the funeral. Because she'd lived her life in isolation. Who are your pallbearers? If your spouse has to scramble and to recruit people who didn't really know you to carry you to your grave, you failed in life. Who are your bridesmaids? Who are the ones that you love so much that you just wanted to bless them with a hideous dress? (laughs) Who are you doing life with? You you know what the book of Proverbs says? The book of Proverbs says, he who isolates himself is a fool. So this is what I hear a lot from, 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 from people. Christians, I hear this all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I love God. I serve God. I got my own personal relationship with God. I just, I don't really care for his church. So, you know, I just podcast some sermons. I just kind of listen to some sermons and take some notes of my own and podcast sermons. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get you. I'm tracking with you. But you can't podcast community. You and I have to have people in our lives. And my own, among my own colleagues, all of my colleagues that I know who have, who have fallen, at the end of the day, we just sit back and we go, nobody really knew them. Like, I need folk in my life who aren't impressed with my resume. I need people that I can literally, and, and I know this is the non-pastoral moment of the sermon, where I can literally say, hey man, pray for me. I was at the gym the other day and I saw this woman and I'm just struggling. Some of y'all here, circuits are blown. Pastors struggle? I'm human. What did you think I was? Now, I can't help it if you want to put me on a pedestal, but I need to be around folk who knock me off of it. And God has blessed me with a wife. She has that gift of just knocking down the pedestal. I come home from a trip. Honey, I preached and 20,000 folk got saved. Oh, that's good. Now take out the garbage. You need, you need folk who are going to tell you to take out the garbage. You need people in your life that you can open up with and be vulnerable with and share your hearts with and just tell them what the real deal is going on in your soul. Watch it now. And not only are they not impressed by you, but you're safe enough with them to where they're not going to discard you. We need that. Now, this is important when we come to our text, because as we come to first Peter, Peter begins with community. He begins with what the church should be about, but that's not his main thing. His main thing is the theme of our text is really how do I handle people who have mistreated us? So that the idea here is he's writing to folk who've just had a bad week and it's been rough and life's come at me fast. And things have just been happening. And this is a crazy season, a rough season in my life. And he begins in verse 8 by giving us eight adjectives of what the church should be in context of a person having a rough week. The implication is, if I'm having a rough week out there, now I need to be able to come in here, get the encouragement and the love and the sympathy and the compassion I need so that at the end of service, at the end of growth group, I'm ready to go back out there for another week to be able to 
run this race the way Jesus called me to run it. And right when I feel like I'm running out of gas, it's time right again to go back into my growth group. It's time right again for me to come into the house of the Lord. This is to be a refueling station where you get what you need to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. We are to encourage you. And so he begins with five adjectives for what the church should be about, should be about. Grammatically speaking, these five things in verse eight, they're adjectives, not nouns. Let me take you back to grammar school. It is always the job of the adjective to modify the noun. Nouns conform to adjectives. Adjectives don't conform to nouns. So he's saying, here's what the church should look like. Not just you as an individual. Here's what the church should look like. The church should have unity of mind, he says. The church should be marked by sympathy. The church should be marked by brotherly love. The church should be marked by tender hearts. The church should be marked by humility of mind. This is what the church should be about. Let me just walk through these things. First of all, he says, the church should be marked by unity. Unity is a beautiful thing. If you got two teeth in your mouth, I promise you they look better together than apart. The church of Jesus Christ must be a place of unity. Psalm 133, the psalmist says, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. In John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus, his last prayer, prior to the cross, pray these, praise these words. Look at them with me. He says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in, in, in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world, the world, the world may believe that you have sinned. He says, what is a powerful witness to to the world is when people of different ethnicities, of different sides of the track, of different zip codes come together and they lay those petty differences down at the foot of the cross and they understand what binds us together is greater than anything that makes us different, Jesus Christ. That we may be one. Now, if unity is a powerful witness, then the flip side is also true. And that is one of the greatest deterrents to people coming to the faith, uh, coming to Jesus Christ, is when they see Christians arguing and at each other's throats. And that's why, friends, I just, again, I, I don't know all that went down um, with the previous you know, group of people who left. But for God's sake, may the residue of disunity stop on this day. May we no longer let the enemy get a foothold. The Bible's big on this. To the Corinthians, Paul actually writes a whole letter, 1 Corinthians. He says, because I'm concerned, I've heard from Chloe's household, that there are divisions among you. He's grieved by it. If you read the Philippians, Paul writes the Philippians. And in writing the letter to the Philippians, he mentions two ladies' names, Yodia and Sintiq. And he says, I plead with, you, with them that you would get along. Disunity is no laughing matter. It's no laughing matter. It is disingenuous for Brian Loritz to come in the household of God and to worship God, but have an attitude with somebody in the same church that doesn't honor God 
In fact, again, you've heard me say this before. The Bible actually says if in the middle of worship, you remember that your brother has aught with you, stop your worship. And I love this. Leave your gift at the altar. That's what the text says. Leave your gift at the altar and go and make it right. God does not receive worship this way if there's division this way. So he says, I want you to have unity of mind. Second thing he says is, I want this to be a place of sympathy, of sympathy, of sympathy. Uh, uh, Peter's writing in in the Greek language, and the Greek word for sympathy literally means to suffer together, to suffer together. That's what it means. This doesn't mean that everybody coming to church goes through the same bad season at the same time. But what it does mean is, here I am, maybe I'm in a bad week. I've been beaten down by life. I come into church. You may be having a great week, but you see me grieving. You see me going through, and you're able to show sympathy. You're able to sit down with me and to cry with me and for me to share with you what's going on. This is Romans 12, 15. Look at it with me. Paul writes in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. My God, if I can't find sympathy anywhere else, may I find it in the church of Jesus Christ. May this be a place that is marked by sympathy. I'm reminded of the great Beethoven and the wonderful biography that was written on his life. Beethoven was not known for being the most sentimental person, but the story is told of the time in which a dear friend of his had died, and Beethoven was holed up in his house, grieving in his own way, but then he heard uh, that this friend of his, his, um, his family, had decided to throw a, a, a meal and a celebration to kind of create a space for people to say good things about the friend and to mourn and grieve, and Beethoven, to the surprise of everybody, shows up. When he walks into the house, Beethoven doesn't say a word to anybody. He just walks to the back of the room, sits down at the piano, and for the next several hours, all he does is play piano as people are crying. He shows sympathy. When was the last time you played your own proverbial piano for someone who's been going through hard times? Brothers and sisters in Christ, did you know that God's primary way in which he loves on people, grieves with people, shows sympathy to people, are you his people? So when was the last time, friends, you brought the meal? You wrote the note. You made the phone call. You stopped by and visit. You know, you know one of the things I'm, I'm trying to teach my kids I'm trying to teach my kids that if you're good with people, you can get a job just about doing anything. People are like bank accounts. You make enough deposits when it's time to be withdrawal, there will be sufficient funds. You get out of people what you put in people. So if when people in the body are hurting... And you don't do anything for them. You don't take the meals. You don't write the notes. You don't do any of that. Don't be surprised that when you go through, nobody's showing up at your door. I'm not saying this to say, do it in order to get back. This is not some quid pro quo thing. But I am saying it's a beautiful thing when the body shows sympathy to one another. He says, here's what the church should be about. Unity of mind place of sympathy. And then he says, it should be a place of brotherly love. The Greek word here, Philadelphos, from which we get brother Arshel, the word Philadelphia. 
Now, if ever there was a city that was called by the wrong name, if you've ever been to Philly, they are known for a lot of stuff. Brotherly love ain't one of them. You know, sadly, there are a lot of churches the same way. They're known for a lot of stuff, but brotherly love ain't one of them. You, you, you know what this word Philadelphos means? It's different from other Greek words for love. Uh, it's different from eros, from which we get the English word erotic. It's different from, um, 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 from agape. This idea of brotherly love, I love it. It is a sibling kind of love. It's the idea of family here. Now, I don't know about your family, but every family has dysfunction. Every family has its mess. In fact, some of y'all sitting here, we just kept it real. You got some siblings you don't necessarily like. But here's the deal. You may not like them, but y'all have each other's back. At least you're supposed to, because that's what family does. Family pretty much says, now, I can talk about them, but you better not talk about them. Family pretty much says at the end of the day, if my sibling who I'm having a hard time with, if they fall on hard times, we're going to close ranks and we're going to do what we need to, to make sure you get what you need to be all that you need to be because we're family. That's how it should be an abundant life. At the end of the day, we're family. Philadelphos, brotherly love. We've got each other's backs. Fourthly, he says that this is to be a place in which people are marked by tender hearts. The idea of a tender heart is really, write this word down, it is the idea of compassion. Now watch it. What does it mean to have compassion? You don't have compassion unless there's need. Matthew chapter 9, it says this of Jesus. And seeing the multitude, seeing he felt compassion. Seeing he felt compassion. Why? Because the text says they were as sheep without a shepherd. In order for there to be compassion, there must be neediness and brokenness. Here's my prayer for abundant life. My prayer is that we are known as the church where needy, broken people can come and find not judgment, but compassion. I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be the kind of church where people walk in just as lost as lost can be. And they didn't get the memo on how long their skirt should be. They didn't get the memo about whether or not they should curse or say certain words or whether or not they should take a smoke break out in the lobby. They're just here because they just heard that this is the church of compassion. And I'm going through and I need compassion before anything else. If you can't find compassion in the house of God. Where in God's name are you going to find it in this society? Finally, he says in verse 8, and a humble mind, a humble mind. This is exactly what Paul was getting at in Philippians chapter 2. Look at it with me when he writes these words in Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, count others more significant than yourselves. He's saying this, the church is to be the place in which we are constantly elevating the needs of other people over mine. It's humility. My youngest boy right now as we speak, uh, he's probably just wrapped up his uh, semifinal playoff game. Hopefully they won. 
kid loves basketball. We just sat down and watched a documentary on Dean Smith, the great basketball coach of the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. He uh, coached such players as Michael Jordan. It was Dean Smith during his 36 years there who said uh, to his players, he mandated, made a rule that if you scored a basket, the first thing you did after you scored is you publicly... You pu- Amen. Amen. Are we good? My connection. Ain't nothing changed. We're going to go with the handheld. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. It was Dean Smith who said, if you scored a basket, the first thing you did was you publicly pointed to the person who passed you the ball. Why? He wanted to make a point that it's not all about you. That you are a part of something bigger. Listen to me. Church is not all about you. You are not the center of the church. Jesus Christ is. The cross is. And there will be some songs that we sing that maybe stylistically you can't get with, you don't like. But it's not about you. And I promise you that while you may not like a particular song, there's a person on your row or on the other side of the sanctuary who is blessed by it, who is being changed by it. It ain't all about you and the style. It is about Jesus Christ. And what makes the church work are not narcissistic, prideful people, but what makes it work are those who are of a humble mind. By the way, humble people serve. Humble people are not just consumers. They don't just say, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. You know what we call a Christian who is constantly consuming but never giving? We call them spiritually obese. Humble people serve. Now, here's the point in all this. I don't know about you, but if you were to tell me there's a church where there's unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderhearted, and, and humble, sign me up. That's the kind of church I want to be at. Now, watch this. We're not finished. We're almost finished. But Peter doesn't end there. Again, the whole idea here is I've been mistreated. I've had a bad week. So that the idea here is I go to church and I find these things in church. I get what I need. But at the end of the day, it's not about getting what I need. It's getting what I need so I can go back out there and deal with people in the bay in such a way that God is glorified. That's the idea. I get what I need so I can go back out. That's why at the end of the service, we're going to end with three words. You are sent. You got your word. You got your worship. You got it. Now go live it. It's the idea here. So that he says in verse nine, right on the heels of that to these mistreated people who've been going through stuff. He says to them in verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. Stop right there. He's saying, listen, here's what the church is to be about. The context is you've been mistreated. People have wronged you. You're beat down. You get to the house of the Lord. You get what you need. Now he says, let me remind you, once you leave, there's a call on your life. And one of the callings on your life is you have been called, hear it now, you're not going to like this, to bless folk who have wronged you. 
You have been called to bless proactive, not to ignore, not to emotionally moonwalk from, not to cut off, not to praise God for caller ID because this person wronged me and they called me and I see their name on my screen. You have a call on your life and it is to bless folk who have wronged you. As my grandmama used to say, one of the ways in which you know you are sure enough saved. It's how you treat people who, if you were on fire and they had a glass of water, would not only not pour it on you, but would drink it slowly. One of the ways in which you know you're saved is how you treat people who have gone out of their way to make life miserable for you. God says there's a call on your life if you really want to be a witness to the world. It's how do you handle people who don't handle you well? He says it is a call. It is a call. It is a call. Greek word kaleo to call by one side. God has called you. He has called you to be with him, which means there are times in which you will go through rough times in this life. And if you want to witness to Jesus, to a world that is dark of the goodness of who he is, go through some difficulties with people who are messing over you. He says you've been called. To bless them. Now watch this. Beginning in verse 10, he now quotes from Psalm 34. You know who wrote Psalm 34? This whole psalm about blessing those who've wronged you? David. If ever there's an example in the Bible of a person who had someone mess over them but handle them well, it was David. I don't know about your boss, but David had a bad boss. Here's David. He's just sitting there playing the harp, doing what the boss told him to do. And the next thing he knows, a spear is coming at his head. Several times Saul tried to kill him. David had to run for his life. He's hiding out in caves. One time hiding out in a cave. He gets word that Saul has wandered into that cave. Didn't know David was there. Saul is just there using the bathroom. David has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. Instead, he cuts off a corner of his garment. Saul, unbeknownst that this has happened, he then leaves. He goes to the other side of the ravine. David shouts out from the other side of the ravine and says, Saul, and he begins to bless him. And look at what Saul says to David in response. It says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. One of the most effective witness witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ is how you handle people who have messed you over. And the call here is not just to keep your mouth shut. It is to bless. So I got to bless this ex who betrayed me. That's the call. I got to bless this boss who's making life miserable for me. That's the call. This person's gossiped and slandered me. What's the call? Bless them. Story is told of a soldier who's reading his Bible late one night during boot camp. He's reading his Bible. And another soldier crossed the way in the barracks was frustrated with him for reading his Bible. He picks up his dirty, muddy shoes that he'd been marching in all of that day and hurls them at the soldier reading his Bible. The next morning when they wake up, 
this soldier who had hurled those shoes, finds his shoes right at the edge of his bed, cleaned off and shined, ready for the day's inspection. Several people had witnessed that scene and multiple others where this Christian just refused to return evil for evil. And at the end of boot camp, these other soldiers had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because when this soldier was reviled, he did not answer with reviling. He answered by blessing. Question, when was the last time you shined someone's shoes? When was the last time you blessed? That mother-in-law needs to be blessed. Now I'm meddling. Why should I do this? Let's end with this. Why should I do it? Verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why should I bless my ex? Why should I bless the person who's gossiped about me? Why should I bless that coworker? Why should I bless that boss? Why should I bless that neighbor? Why should I bless? Why? He says, because God is watching. In fact, he says two things along these lines as we close. He says in verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, good days there are not just the days on this earth. It's also used eschatologically. That means it is also used of the end times. In other words, he's saying, if you want to see heaven, then you need to be careful how you treat people who mistreat you. Now, watch it. He's not preaching work salvation. He's not saying bless someone who mistreats you in order to get into the kingdom. What he is saying is one of the ways I know the kingdom has gotten into me is I bless people who have mistreated me. I am most like Jesus and I know I'm sure enough saved when I bless people that wrong me. Why? Because that's what God does to us every day. Don't you dare sit up here and think you're the only one that mistreated someone. Every time we sin, we mistreat God. Every time we sin, we slander God. Every time we sin, we revile God. And what does God do? Thank God. God does not do us the way we do others who've mistreated us. I'll never forget, man. I was, being, I was in Bible college, man. And one of my classmates called me the N-word. Ain't that something? Studying the Bible, preparing for ministry. So what I do, I just, I shut down, man. Root of bitterness got in. I didn't speak to this person. I shut down, tormented, didn't speak to this person at all. And then the Holy Spirit, who can be so meddling and so much of a nuisance. Any amens on that? Don't you find the Holy Spirit a nuisance sometimes? I say that with the utmost respect, God. One day, he's just talking to me. Now, Brian, I need you to go have a conversation with this young man. What? Yeah. So he sinned against you, right? Yeah. Well, have you sinned against me ever? Yeah. And what did you do when he sinned against you? I stopped speaking to him. Have I stopped speaking to you? What if God treated us the way we treat others? The very fact that you are breathing today. The very fact that, as the old folks used to say, that God woke you up this morning and started you on your way is an act of blessing.
So I went and had a conversation with him. To say I'm a Christian and I don't bless folk who have wronged me is an oxymoron. Say it another way. A Christian who holds a grudge is a contradiction in terms. Then I love how he ends it. He says, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Watch it. He talks about the eyes of the Lord. He talks about his ears. He talks about his face. Theologians call this an anthropomorphic reverence, reference to God. What does that mean? Technically, God doesn't have eyes. Technically, God doesn't have a face. Technically, God doesn't have ears. How do we know that? John chapter 4, Jesus says of his own father, God is spirit. God is so incomprehensible that at times he's got to use human language to describe how he is in order for us to understand him. He's so other than. Our text talks about that the face of the Lord are against those who do evil. You study this idea of the face of the Lord, you'll see something interesting. In Numbers chapter 6, Moses blesses the people, and he says this to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. Watch it now. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What does that mean? The idea of God's face shining upon you, watch it. It is the picture of God turning his face towards you, which is a picture of his blessing and his favor. But our text says that God's face is against those who do evil. Which means this. He's talking to people who've been mistreated and he's saying, I need you to bless. Oh, by the way, if you don't bless people who mistreat you, God's face turns from you. Which means there are some people who've been mistreated, but are not experiencing the blessings and favor of God. Because they did not bless when reviled. That's quiet. There are some things you will not receive from God until you walk in obedience with your enemies. Well, how do I do that? Just yesterday, I was on a prayer walk, man, and look, look, I've had people who've wronged me. I've had people who've hurt me. I've had people, man, I thought I could trust. They turned around and just did awful things to me. And sometimes, man, that, that stuff stays with you for a while. So I'm on my prayer walk yesterday, and I'm walking, and I'm praying through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm praying through these things. And then I get to the part, and this always happens to me when I pray through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I remember one time praying that prayer going, God, help me to be merciful. And God's saying, well, you know what that means. You only can become merciful when folk who have wronged you have put themselves in your debt. So I'm praying yesterday. I'm thinking, all these people have wronged me. Here's a great way to bless people. Pray for them. Pray for them by name. I mentioned this one person's name. God, 
Bless him. Now, I got to pray this by faith. Bless his business. Bless his finances. Bless his children. Bless his health. That's how you can begin blessing people. Now, here's what happens. You pray blessings over folk who've wronged you long enough. God will start to heal the hurt. But it's an act of faith. Who in your life do you need to bless? We are here today because God in his grace has not treated us the way we deserved. But when we reviled him in our sins, he blessed us with the gift of his son, Jesus Christ.